0: Three unscripted listeners. We have a distinguished guest with us. He is Daniel Hannon, and he's been a member of European Parliament for 11 years. He's an author of several books and numerous articles uh, for publications such as the Wall Street Journal, The Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, and the German daily Die Welt. Uh, Daniel has been interviewed in the past by Glenn Beck on Fox News and by the BBC. Daniel, it's an honor to have you here on uh, J3 unscripted Podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Jay. It's great to be here. Just uh, what one small correction. I am not a member of the European Parliament. We no longer have members of the European Parliament because I'm glad to say we are now an independent country. So my job disappeared on the day of Brexit.
0: <laughs> Correct. Uh, so that would be an ex-member uh, of the European Parliament. Okay. Thank you. Daniel, since your book, uh, The New Road to Serve Them, a letter of warning to America was published 10 years ago, America has changed a great deal. In The New Road to Serve Them, uh, you have made an observation that in Europe, people deny their elected officials legitimacy, but not in the United States. That was before we heard from some anti-Trump voters not recognizing Trump when in 2016, saying he is not my president. And also before some Trump supporters not recognizing the 2020 presidential election results. Daniel, what is your take on this legitimacy issue today?
1: Yeah, thank you, Jay. I think you have touched on the most worrying trend in the US and in Western politics more widely. And it's the way in which People become indifferent to process when they happen to want a particular outcome, whether that outcome is a legal one or the appointment of a judge or a public official, or indeed an election result, as in the two cases uh, you mentioned, where people were so invested in a particular outcome that they began to see democracy as uh, just a means to an end, to be discarded if it didn't do its job. And the the scary thing for me is not that that is a shocking or surprising way of looking at the world, but actually, in a way, the the shocking and surprising thing is that we managed to have law based democratic states at all. Right. Because, you know, we're we're fairly tribal creatures. Uh, It's much easier to be loyal to your team, to your guy, your ideas than it is to a bit of paper that says this is how the rules work. You know, it's, it's much more natural to cheer your team than to cheer the referee. And yet, sure. as soon as you stop cheering the referee, as soon as you stop upholding the legitimacy of the referee, you cease to be a country like the United States, and you become a country like Bolivia or you know somewhere where the where the uh, the government is contingent, the constitution comes and goes, and uh, ultimately the rules are subject to the whims of the rulers. And I, I have a horrible feeling that if you like the the exception that was the U.S. and the Western world more widely, may now be coming to an end, and we may be coming back into a period of arbitrary government. Um, Daniel,
0: in the new road to serfdom, you mentioned Professor Vaubel of uh, Mannheim University, who did a study of 22 federations. Among his findings, I find one that was very concerning to me, um i quote powers delegated to the center in times of war or crisis are rarely devolved when the emergency passes unquote so the emergency now is covid 19 and what terrifies me daniel is the trillions of dollars in additional government spending the money that we don't have it is scary to think that it will now become business as usual when the pandemic passes the long term consequences of of the for the average American would be dire. Uh, Daniel, do you believe that this practice of giving millions, uh, trillions, I should say, away uh, is here to stay?
1: Yes, I'm afraid it is. Well, maybe not, not on that level. uh, After the crisis passes, but the dial is not going to move back to where it was. And I'm afraid the story of the rise of the state, the rise of big government is in many ways, the story of a series of crises that are followed by a big power grab, which is then never completely reversed. So if I if I think of the story of, of my own country, uh, the UK, in 1940, we mobilized the entire economy for the war effort. We introduced a series of controls and property seizures and so on, because there was this one-off emergency. Our our national survival was threatened. We were in a war against Nazism. But what's very striking is how slow the government was to return those freedoms that it had supposedly on on a contingent basis after 1945. So we had uh, we had uh, identity cards until 1952. We had food rationing until 1954. We had full mail conscription until 1960. And when it comes then to the economic controls that were put in, uh, they lasted really until the Thatcher government in the 1980s. And I have a horrible feeling that it will be the same thing coming out of lockdown. Uh, not just the, the spending, but a lot of the controls that were put in place, supposedly for the one-off emergency of the epidemics, will linger long after the disease has faded. I see.
0: Daniel, you, you pointed out um, 10 years ago in the New Road to Serve Them that one of the advantages of the United States system of government is the ability of the states make local independent decisions rather than rely on central planners. What works in one location may or may not work in another. Also, the states can learn from one another if the measures succeeded or failed and adopt the best practices. Today, I'm happy to witness a great example of how the system functions with COVID. In the US, it is not the federal government, but each state that decides whether to restrict business activity and travel. There are a few states that are mostly farms and people live far from each other So they had no restrictions, and it worked for them. Also, the state of Texas recently declared that it was not necessary to wear a mask anymore. After that, the number of new COVID cases and hospitalizations kept going down. Now, Daniel, I understand that European Union countries also make their own decisions on on COVID measures. Am I completely or only partially correct
1: on that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 telling though, isn't it, that we are talking about European Union countries as if they were states of the U.S. In other words, as though they were already kind of subordinate entities within a, a larger nation. Um, yes, they, you know, Portugal or Poland can make its own decisions in the way that Delaware or Missouri can. Um, so, but what worries me more, in in a way, Jay, is that the the shift in power away from the 50 states within the US, which has been a feature of uh, American history, at least since the, uh, the 20th century, arguably since the Civil War, is never reversed. You know, you get you get activist federal governments that centralize. And then you have supposedly conservative governments that supposedly stand for the Constitution and they just leave it alone. They never really reverse it. And I think that was certainly true of the the last Trump administration. There was was no uh, return of power back from D.C. to the the 50 states. Uh, And so I'm afraid that this this power that we both admire, the ability to, to trial new ideas and pilot new schemes and learn from best practice in your neighbors, is becoming less and less valuable because uh, the country increasingly demands, uh, and the government increasingly imposes uniform policies on social issues, on economic issues, even on taxation issues. Indeed, uh, Biden now wants uh, not just harmonisation of taxation across the 50 states, but a harmonisation of taxation across the whole world. You know, he wants to have uh, uh, he and Janet Yellen want to have a, a uniform rate of corporation tax for the whole world. I mean, this is. This is kind of cartel behavior because it prevents the competitiveness that acts as the biggest constraint on big government. Yes, I agree.
0: Daniel, in in the new road to serve them, um, you warned about introducing a government option in the healthcare insurance because it soon drives away all private insurance. And Canadian healthcare is an example of that. Uh, You cited. I heard Canadians say that they have to wait for months for a medical procedure and so then they come to the United States for immediate immediate care. Now, Joe Biden wants to introduce a government option here, and I am concerned. But uh, what about in times of a health crisis, uh, as now with COVID? How effective, in your opinion, has been the British government-run healthcare system known as the NHS against the COVID-19 outbreak?
1: that's a very good question so the the british healthcare system was plainly considered to be more vulnerable at the start and it was slower to adapt and it was particularly bad at testing uh, the reason that we had a stricter more severe lockdown than most of our neighbors is because we had less uh, faith in the capacity of our system to be able to handle uh, a surge in cases uh, we had a very, very bad start to the pandemic. We were bad at procurement. We were bad at testing. And it showed up in, in our, sadly, in our, our higher rates of infection and fatalities. We then, um, the prime minister then had the, the wisdom, if you like, to, to kind of ignore the official channels and to appoint a, a sort of vaccine czar from the private sector who knew the the pharmaceutical financing world intimately. She'd spent her whole life as a kind of venture capitalist in that field. She had all the CEO's numbers on her phone and she ignored pretty much all the layers of bureaucracy and came out with what I think is recognized as a world-beating vaccine uh, procurement program. So having gone from a very bad start on PPE and testing, we then went to an extraordinarily good performance on vaccine rollout. And here, to be fair, the National Health Service, if you like, it was doing the one thing that it really is good at, which is to run a completely centralised government system where everyone is is just called in and given a a, a vaccine. Uh, We've we've found something where it, it genuinely has an edge over other systems, because when the when the role of the system is simply to get as many vaccines into as many arms in as short a time as possible, uh, you don't need particularly flexibility or choice. You you just need a, a good database. And uh, it, it, if you like the wartime uh, structure in our healthcare system that was set up in the 1940s, turned out to be very well suited to this. Interesting and uh, very fair comment on your part too. Well, I I always want to give credit where it's due. I mean, I don't think we have a particularly successful healthcare system, right? And I think if you measure uh, like with like, how likely are you to survive cancer or stroke or heart disease, you know, we're not the worst in the world, but we lag behind a number of similarly wealthy states, right? So the, the UK does not have a great healthcare system. I don't think the U S has a great healthcare system either. I think there are systems out there that are better than either yours or ours. Uh, and there are things we could learn from countries that have, uh, I mean, I i I've always been particularly drawn to the Singapore model where they just kind of give you a, a pot of money rather than an insurance system. So it keeps the, the costs of the doctors down. But in every system you have good and bad people and to be fair, in pretty much every system, the good people are more numerous than the bad people. Right? The kind of person who becomes a physician or a nurse generally is driven by by wanting to help. They're people, people, uh, and whether they work in a, in a system that gives full rein to their talents or whether they work in a slightly inefficient system, you know, what, what we're always struck by is how cheerful they are uh, and. So it's important that when we criticize the structure of a healthcare system, it should be clear that we're not criticizing the clinicians who work in it. Certainly. Uh, Daniel,
0: what we are seeing in the United States today is a is threat to our freedom of speech in the form of, of canceling on social networking applications. Employees are afraid to say something politically incorrect that would get them fired. College students afraid to say something politically incorrect in their class that would lower the grade. We are seeing uh, disrespect to our founders and destruction of their statues. Um, and I'd like to quote from the final paragraph of your book, Mr. Hanna, of ten years ago, the new road to serve them, a letter of warning to America. And I quote: Honor the genius of your founders, respect the most sublime constitution devised by human intelligence, keep faith with the design that made you independent, preserve the freedom of the nation to which by good fortune and God's grace you are privileged to belong." Daniel, after ten years of writing these sentences, they're more—they're even more meaningful today. And I
1: want to thank you for the book, Daniel. Hammond. Thank you very much, Jane. Just just before we finish, I, 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 let me just say I think sure. the the issue that you raised just there of cancel culture is worse than either of us could have imagined ten years ago. And and by cancel culture, I don't mean people being disinvited to speak on campus or whatever, that's fine. Or even people not being allowed accounts on social media, that that's up to the company. I mean, pressure being put on the employers or on a third party to take action that is harmful to someone because of an opinion that they hold that is unrelated to the job that they do. So academics being fired, or or as you said, students being scared to express an opinion in case they're uh, graded badly, uh, that is absolutely antithetical to a free society. But what worries me the most is that it's happening in the last place that it should be allowed, which is on campus. Universities are there to be temples of the Enlightenment. They are there to spread the idea of free inquiry, freedom of speech, empiricism, the scientific method, the idea that you find the truth, by having different contested clashing ideas and that out of the din of the uh, different interpretations, you find something more or less accurate. When our universe turn their back on the Enlightenment and pursue this kind of anti-intellectualism, this racial politics, identity politics, this extraordinary pre-modern idea that what counts is not whether what you're saying is true but who is saying it? You know, where does the speaker stand in the imagined pyramid of hierarchy and oppression? Are they white, are they female, or well, whatever? Once that happens, then truly we are giving up on the rationalism and the empiricism that defines modern civilization. And if you had told me 10 years ago that things would be this bad in 2021, I would have been doubtful. I think this is the single biggest cause of worry in the Western world at the moment.
0: Daniel, thank you for being with us on this episode of J3 Unscripted podcast. Thank you, Jay. Our listeners, if you want to hear other interesting episodes of J3 Unscripted, do subscribe to our YouTube channel.